But Lord, now as we open your word, we pray you just uh, calm our hearts and minds and help us to uh, put every other thought aside. Uh, may we concentrate. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, Lord. There's so many thoughts going through my head, and I pray that you would just help me to uh, say the things I ought and nothing more. And uh, just make this a profitable time. Lord, your Bible promises that uh, your word will never come back void. And so we pray that would be the case today. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I have been thinking about the devil lately. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In that passage, he is referred to as our adversary, the devil. But he's known by many names in the Bible. Yeah, he's the devil. That's, that's probably the one we're most familiar with. He's also referred to as the serpent, the evil one, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness, the ruler of the demons, the ruler of the world, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren. He is called Lucifer, Apollyon, Abaddon, Belial, Beelzebub, and, of course, Satan. But whatever you want to call him, I want to make sure that we all understand this this morning. He is real. And he is the enemy of our souls. Turn with me to Job, chapter 1. And let me share with you an example. Job, chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Jump down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and proceeded to smite Job in just about every way it's possible to smite him. Took his wealth, took his, took his children, took just about everything that he had. Jump down to verse number, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. I mean, there's many things we could talk about from that passage. That's a very interesting passage. Many questions that it rises, uh, makes come up in our mind. But I, but I want to use it only as a demonstration this morning that there was a being named Satan. He was righteous Job's enemy, his adversary. And Satan wanted to destroy the relationship between Job and God. Not only that, I think we could, we could point out he wanted to destroy the relationships Job had with others. His relationship with his wife wasn't too good after all this took place. His relationship with his children was obviously destroyed as they were taken away. And his relationship with his friends as well. Our adversary, the devil, wants to destroy relationships. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. Now, of course, we have to be clear, he cannot totally destroy it if you're a believer, because once a person trusts in Christ, they are eternally secure in him. They're born again, and it is forever. You never need to worry about losing your salvation in that way. Satan can't do a thing about that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am my Father. Are one. So Satan can't take away your salvation. He'd love to, but he can't. But he does love to take the joy out of a Christian's relationship with God. He loves to damage their walk with, 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 with the Lord in any way he can. He is constantly seeking to pull you out of church, to make you ineffective. He loves to see Christians drift away from serving God. And I think he loves to destroy other relationships as well. He, he just loves to destroy. It, it, it seems to me like we're seeing an inordinate number of attacks on families these days. And I think Satan wants to destroy families. Whether on a general level where we see the very definition of family being so assaulted in our day and age and in our society, or on a specific level where we see him setting his sights on particular families in marriages and homes. In any of those cases, Satan wants to destroy relationships. Relationships between husbands and wives. Relationships between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, friends, neighbors, co-workers. They're all fair game. Satan wants to break them up. He is our adversary, the devil. And although I think Satan has many arrows in his quiver that he lobs at you to try to accomplish that sort of thing, as I've thought about this, and as I think back through my, my years of, of ministry, I think we can narrow it down to three. I think there are three primary arrows that Satan uses very, very often. Not always. And there might be others that you've experienced, but I'll bet you if I mention these three, you're going to say, yep, those are the top and here's arrow number one. Arrow number one that, that breaks up relationships and causes people to be split apart is something offensive is said. That's arrow number one. And we take offense at it. Arrow number two is getting us to dwell on some past hurt in the relationship. and You just can't get over that. That's arrow number two. And arrow number three is to convince us, well, we're just not getting what we want out of this particular relationship. If you think about those things, uh, I, I, I think that you can see that the, the, those are the reasons many believers leave churches. Those are the believers, many believers drift away from, uh, from God. And I think we can also point out that those are the reasons, by and large, 
that many marriages blow apart, that many relationships between family members uh, blow apart. I mean, think about it. Two parties are at odds. The reason is often, I I just can't get over something he said. I can't get over it. Or he or she hurt me a long time ago, and I just can't forget that. I can't forgive that. Or my needs are just not being met. I mean, what relationship do those three things not fit into? I think they're all there. There are three arrows in Satan's quiver. If we could dull the points on those three arrows, we could solve an awful lot of problems. And so I want to look at them. And today I want to just look at the first one. I just want to look at the offensive words of others that, uh, that trip so many of us up. And we'll look at the others over the next couple of weeks. But let's look at that first arrow number one today, the offensive words of others. I mean, after all, here's a piece of news for you. Maybe you don't know this, but people are going to say mean things about you. It might happen. As a matter of fact, I think it almost certainly will happen, and not just once, but probably many times if you live a decent and normal life. People are going to say things that upset you. And so how do we respond when others verbally hurt or offend us? We need to learn to deal with that because Satan's going to lob that arrow. And we need to learn to figure out a way to swat it away. Solomon gives us some wonderful advice. Turn to another passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I think this might be the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to look at verse number 20. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Solomon there gives us some pretty good advice about the words that others might speak about us. And I think they can help us here. Consider, I see three things there that he taught in those three verses. First of all, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Everybody sins. That's the first thing. If we could get our mind around that context, most of the time we would not be bothered by the reality of it. Everybody sins. That includes you and it includes me. Plenty of other scripture comes to mind. I'm sure you can think of some other verses. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I I don't know how we can question the, the simplicity of those verses. I mean, it's very clear. All of us are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah said, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That verse is even stronger to me, because what Isaiah was saying there is even our good, our righteousnesses, the things that we think we're doing good at, he's saying those are filthy. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And how ridiculous is it for us to cry out to God for salvation, to recognize that uh, we have a complete inability to live righteously ourselves and that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and yet deny that that same frailty exists in others who might be saying some things that they ought not. When others say things that cut us, I think that tells us we ought to cut them some slack. When somebody says something that offends or hurts then we need to remember that they are sinners, just like you. We want, to, we want to accept that fact about ourselves. 
I'm a sinner. Give me, give me a break. I'm a sinner. I can't live right. But we expect everybody else to live very, very, very perfectly and don't want to cut them the same slack. So Solomon's first piece of advice is helpful. It kind of lays the foundation for the whole thing. It's to simply recognize a sinner's sin. Sinner's sin. To not be surprised by it when a sinner sins. To recognize that it is universal. There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Sinners do sinful things. Sinners commit sinful acts. Sinners sometimes say sinful things. Solomon's not done, though. He goes on. He says also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. He just makes it very plain here. You ought not pay attention to unkind things other people say. Don't pay attention to it. I had a neighbor named Lenny. Lenny lived behind me across my pond. Those of you who have been at my place, he lived in the house behind me across the pond. Lenny was the biggest hippie I've ever known in my life. He had hair down about to his waist. He was an absolute sushi-loving beatnik. He was, he was just that kind of a guy. And I absolutely loved Lenny. He was just a great guy. I really, I, I really had a lot of fun with Lenny. We had a neighborhood garage sale one time. And uh, he came over and he brought a table and a bunch of stuff to set up at this garage sale. And uh, one of the things, I, I, I don't remember what it was because, frankly, I never saw it, but I, I think he, it was a tent that he was trying to sell. And he came over and he was all excited about this tent because he thought, surely somebody's going to buy this because it's a very expensive tent. And he thought he was going to get some money out of it. And so we're setting things up. And I, suddenly I see him just struggling over there and running around and acting all distressed and distraught. And I said, what's the matter? He said, I can't find that tent. I can't find it anywhere. And he had completely lost the thing. It had disappeared off the face of the earth like the Star Trek transporter had <laughs> taken it out. Because he claimed he had put it in his car. And so it wasn't there. And so he was getting very distressed. And uh, I decided to leave him alone. I went and I set up my stuff. About a half an hour later, I was all done. Everything was set up. And I see him over there sitting in a lawn chair where the money stuff was waiting for customers to come. So I went over and sat down by him. And I said, do you ever find that tent? And he looked at me and he said, nope. I said, well, you're not very upset about it. And he said, I had to let that go. <laughs> I've never forgot that. I had to let that go. You know, that's what Solomon was saying here. Let it go. Let it go. When somebody says something that offends you, let it go. Don't pay attention to everything people say. And of course, it sounds like pretty simple advice, I know, and, 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 and putting it into practice is the very thing we struggle with, but, but, but it is what we're supposed to do. Don't pay attention to everything people say. I heard a preacher speaking on this subject one time. <coughs> Excuse me. And he used another illustration. He used the illustration of, of television. He said, when we see something on television that we don't like, or we see something on television that bothers us or offends us, what do we do? Well, we, we turn it off sometimes, but oftentimes we'll just change the channel. We just won't pay any attention to it, and we'll change the channel. And he went on to talk about how that's what we ought to do here. Move on to something else. Change the channel. Don't dwell on that particular thing. If a Christian says something we don't like, or somebody in, in, in our relationship says something we don't like, you know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to turn on the DVR and to record it and then to play it back over and over and over again. He says just change the channel and forget that. Remember the old LP records? I have a bunch of LP records somewhere at home. Kathy, when she moved from Pennsylvania, has a big box of LP records somewhere. And uh, we keep talking every once in a while about playing them. Some people still claim that the old vinyl is better 
than the new stuff. I don't know if that's true or not. You know what I remember about them? I remember that you'd be listening to a song. And as you were listening to the song, every once in a while, the needle would get stuck. You remember that? And it would just repeat and repeat. Amazing grace, zing grace, zing grace, zing grace. And you walk over there and you'd finally bump the needle and it would go out and play. That's what we need to do. Sometimes we need to move the needle and not allow that thing to play over and over and over and over in our head. We need to break out of the loop and quit listening to the repeating phrase of something somebody said that just bothers us so much. Isn't that what Solomon said? Do not take to heart everything people say. So when people say nasty things about you, and they will, don't dwell on it. Let it go. Change the channel. Move the needle. Do something else. Don't, don't dwell on the negative things to say. Howard Hendricks used to talk about stinking thinking. And I think that's what he's talking about here. When we allow something rotten to just fester in our mind and we don't, we don't do anything about it, stinking thinking. Solomon says don't do that. Do not take to heart everything people say. And here's the convincing part. See, he's not done yet. He said a third thing. He said uh, many times also, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. In other words, you say things yourself that you should not. Do you dare deny the truth of Solomon's words there? I certainly cannot. I have to admit it. There are many things I've said, whether in anger or just stupidity or emotion, ignorance, just plain meanness. I've said things in the past that I wish I could take back, and so too probably have you. John MacArthur wrote, Since you have many offensive words to be forgiven, do not keep strict accounts of others' offensive words against you. And that's true. And I guess it all boils down to forgiveness, doesn't it? Forgiveness. I forgive others because Christ has forgiven me so much. I am able to change the channel. I am able to let it go. I am able to ignore unkind or offensive words in my way. Why? Because I know I've done the same. And Christ has forgiven me of it. That's what I think Solomon is saying to us here. When those unkind words come our way over and over, we must forgive. Over and over. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't say forgive once. He said forgive over and over and over. As many times as you need to forgive, just keep forgiving over and over. Uh, Jesus explained the concept to Peter in Matthew 18. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a pretty difficult requirement. I think Peter must have had a look on his face because Jesus went on then and explained a little bit about what he meant by giving uh, an illustration of it. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to understand that number. That number was basically infinity. That was the largest number. No one could think of a bigger number than that. It was an impossible to repay debt. 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That was a pittance. That was like maybe a day's 
wage or something like that. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. Too many of us are like that unjust steward, that unjust servant. We have been forgiven so much. An impossible debt. Impossible debt. And yet when somebody wrongs us in some small or trivial way, such as by saying something rotten to us, we can't get past it. And we can't forgive. These things ought not so to be. We need to forgive. We need to forgive much because we have been forgiven much. We need to remember the words of Solomon. Many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So I wonder, have you ever experienced this arrow from Satan? Have you ever struggled with somebody lobbing unkind words your way that really lodged in your heart and you just struggled with it? Offensive words, difficult words. Perhaps you've experienced Satan lobbing it squarely at your relationship with God. Your relationship with your church, have you? Have you experienced somebody saying something mean or unkind to you personally? Maybe even in this place. It's hard to imagine because we're a perfect church. But have you experienced anything like that? Here's what you need to do. This is, there's no rocket science to this. You need to forgive them. You need to change the channel. You need to run right back to them and be their friend. You just need to refuse to dwell on that negative comment. Anybody ever done anything like that to you? Here's another one. Did somebody ever say something unkind, mean, offensive about somebody else that you care about? I would suggest that's even harder. I think it's even harder. If somebody says something unkind about me, I usually will respond by crawling into the fetal position somewhere and sucking my thumb for a while and being upset. If somebody were to say something mean about my wife or one of my kids, I think you might see a different side of me. I think I'd do something else with this besides suck my thumb. It's, it's just, and we're all the same way, aren't we? When we hear something said about somebody we care about, we love, that is a lot harder for us to forgive. But, you know, it's just as much sinful, isn't it? It's still the wrong response. Regardless of what was said or who was said, uh, we need to do the same thing. We need to forgive and we need to change the channel and we need to let it go and we need to refuse to dwell on that kind of words. Here's the one that probably, if we're going to talk about churches and people getting upset with, with their relationship with God or, or, or their relationship with their church, maybe the preacher said something that you disagree with. Does that ever happen? preacher says something that makes you mad. Surely not ever happened here. I'm sure it would never happen here. But it does happen in other churches. And, and you know what I'm always amazed at when I hear about it happening in other churches? I'm always amazed how people can sit and listen to a preacher preach and say amen for years, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then at one time, the poor guy says something, one little thing, and all of a sudden, you're offended and you're out of here. That would never happen here. I know it would never happen here. But you know what we need to do as believers? We need to quit being so stinking pious about that sort of thing. And we need to recognize uh, that we're just being ridiculous. No student of the Bible is going to be perfect all the time. 
No preacher is always going to say the things that you want them to say. They're, believe it or not, going to make mistakes once in a while. That, that would never happen here either. But they are. Sometimes as they get some years under them and they continue to study the Word, they might even gasp, change their mind about something because they have now studied it more fully and learned the Word of God more completely. See, the thing is, if we're bothered by something that we hear from the pulpit, and again, it never happened here, but if we are, it needs to drive us into the Word rather than out the door. It needs to drive us into the Word to study and to determine what's right rather than to let Satan use it to divide us. See, that's what he wants to do. He wants to divide us with doctrine, whereas the Lord wants us to be united by doctrine. I think there's just no doubt that Satan's first arrow, this arrow of taking offense at the speech of others, is one of his choice weapons. And I think it oftentimes is what is the very reason why people are drawn or, or pushed away from serving God, pushed away from their church or the relationships that we have in this place. And I think it is also true, it's how it impacts marriage relationships. I mean, think about this. How many, how many times have you known someone who's going through marital strife, difficulty with that sort of a relationship, and, and, and you'll, you'll, you, 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 you'll hear them say something like, uh, you know, he said something, I just can't get past. Or she said something, I just can't get past. How many of us husbands have heard our wives say, do you remember when you said 25 years ago? It's been festering all that time. I can't get over it. Well, yes, you can. The same solution applies to any relationship. It applies to this this arrow wherever he lobs it, whether we're talking church relationships, marital relationships, anything else, when we've heard something that offends us. Listen to what Solomon says. Solomon was one of the wisest men who's ever lived. Listen to what he says. You know what he said? Let it go. Let it go. Change the channel. Move the needle. Forgive. Forgive. Forgive again. And refuse to dwell on negative There's a very thought-provoking illustration, which I'm not sure this is a totally accurate illustration of this, but I'm going to use it. I think think it is. King David was going through a very difficult time in his reign. His rotten son, Absalom, had initiated a nasty coup and had wrenched the kingdom from his own father. And David was forced to flee for his very life from his own son. It was a terrible time in David's life. As David was fleeing from Absalom, a man named Shimei, who had some axe to grind with David, appeared out of nowhere and began to heap verbal abuse on David. He began to say unkind, offensive things to David. And uh, let, me just, let me just read a little bit about this passage. You don't have to turn to this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 16. It says, When King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, this was one of David's 
mighty man, David's uh, warriors, he said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. I'd like to have a guy like that around me, wouldn't you? Let me go take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you? So let him curse. Because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? Now, I want you to notice what David said here. He said, in effect, Perhaps God told him to say that. Now, I don't know, and I don't think, that God told that little creep to say mean things to David. I don't think that's what was going on there. But I do know that David showed a very interesting attitude right there. He showed forgiveness. He showed willingness to let it go. And I think it's something that we can learn from. If you read the rest of that story and you go on you read the end, uh, Shimei came to an interesting end in the end. But here at this time, I think it might be a good illustration. So if we could just do that, we will blunt one of Satan's choicest, most powerful arrows. He'll lose one of his prime weapons in knocking you or I away from our walk with God, uh, causing any of us to drift in our relationship with our Savior, hurting our homes, our marriages, all of our relationships. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 